Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times, and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today, it is Alison Rudd. Alison, hello, how are you? How was your weekend? It was good. Um, I went to um, my first lockdown game, and I was, I will admit, I was ner- I was nervous. I really? Just, I don't know why. I expected to be sat in the middle of, of a stand with no desk, no Wi-Fi, no power, <laughs> and for it to be a nightmare. But Bournemouth, um, they really looked after the media. We had um, special little desks, and I think they put in new plugs, and we had big TV screens. So it was all... Oh, they, wow. they, they made it as nice as they could. So it was a sort of extended press area for you, by the sound of it, that they managed well, we to sat- accomplish... Yeah, we, they, we, we sat opposite the real press box. Um, oh. That the, the, the real press box was occupied by um, staff of the of the clubs, but they'd made sure that the make believe press area was was workable, and that's mm. all you want. You want to be able to do your job and not think, "How am I going to file this?" So they were they were good and and apologetic that all they could give us was water, but that was the rule, and it was fine. Okay, well, it sounds all very good at, at Bournemouth, and, and of course, you were at Craven Cottage, Gregor. Was it similar circumstances for you? Yes, yes, very. You know, everyone was spread out very much around the stand. Although we didn't have a wee desk, we were sitting on Fulham's old wooden seats, unfortunately. <laughs> but they did produce power for us. So, um, no, it was all it was all very strange. It was, I don't know. Yeah, the the game was the game was very entertaining, and I'm sure you were very entertained watching it, particularly <laughs> at the end. Um, <laughs> But, How did you guess? <laughs> but it was just, I don't know, there was something sort of huge was missing and that's obviously what that was. And it, I think mm. I think it will affect the players for as long as this continues. I think kind of reaching the very, very peak performance and, and highest levels that, that footballers can, I think it's going to be very difficult without fans sort of, because they help to motivate you and they help you to sort of uh, reach your very best. So, um, th- look, the players put on a really good show in the end but um, it was very very odd I hope we get used to it quickly it's a strange one isn't it for both of you obviously being at the game it's very different from for the from the viewers perspective because obviously we now have the option of listening to crowd effects so you sort of feel like it's a bit more of a game if you do have have the crowd effects on how much are you now listening out for what the players are saying Gregor for example yeah I mean actually I uh... It was more the managers that intrigued me oh. uh, this time. I, I wrote about that in my column today, because I mean, I kind of know what players say. I, you know, I, I know they say on the pitch, and it's none of that's particularly surprising to me. But you'd never really hear your manager uh, when there's a crowd in the, inside the stadium. When there's a decent enough crowd, anyway. And here, and actually, more of, quite often players do their best to kind of not to give any recognition to, to, the, to the screams and shouts from the touchline. But there's no escaping it now. And I was amazed how much Scott Parker and, and Thomas Frank were kind of hounding and harrying their uh, their players and, and encouraging at times. But, you know, they were very, very vocal. And that was quite interesting for me to watch. Mm. And was he speaking in Danish, Thomas Frank, at times? <laughs> no, no, it was, uh, it was all, all well understandable. A oh. lot of telling the, sque- the back four to squeeze higher, getting on Pontus Janssen's back quite a lot. Very brave. Very brave indeed, yeah. I'm surprised Pontus listened. Um, But Alison, what about you, just before we we move on? Did you hear anything different that you haven't heard before, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, it it was surreal. I mean, first of all, it wasn't awful. It was quite nice. It felt like you'd been allowed into a private session. 
and yes. you know you've given a vip pass like i'd won it in a competition or something so i felt <laughs> quite privileged in that sense but yeah to to clearly hear the seagulls and to be able to hear the walkie-talkie of the steward and hear what the walkie-talkie is saying and then knowing that the walkie-talkie is nearer the players so they can hear it too i mean it must have felt kind of strange i did do a piece where i interviewed some um, sports psychologists and they said good players are are excellent at blocking out the noise of, of the crowd if it's there and if it's not there blocking out weird noises so they probably wouldn't have been thinking oh i wonder what's going on on the walkie-talkie but from a uh, a viewer's point of view it was being immersed into a just a completely different experience but it wasn't as unpleasant as i expected it to be it, as i say i just ended up feeling quite privileged to mm. i mean it was, i was right on the halfway line about seven or eight seats are a perfect <laughs> perfect view i could hear the players chatting i could hear the referee talking to the players it's christian names which i think is nice and no it was good it was good i mean it wasn't good because it's awful but i mean given what it had to be what it, given, yes, given what it had to course. be it wasn't as dreadful as i was expecting Indeed. Well, we'll uh, talk more about Bournemouth in a little while. But also coming up, we're going to find out if Gregor is still backing Norwich to stay up after a fascinating weekend at the bottom of the table. And we're looking at some extraordinary strikes from very ordinary players. But first, it's time for this. The train is now approaching junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta, says the way his side lost their Premier League game at Brighton on Saturday is unacceptable. The Gunners were the better side for much of the game, but threw away a one-goal lead with poor defending, allowing Lewis Dunk to equalise before Neil Mopé scored the winner for Brighton in the fifth minute of added time. Gregor, if we examine Arsenal's performance, was it unacceptable? Uh, yes, but not unexpected. I think that's the mm. thing you've got to say now. None of this is new from Arsenal. I'm increasingly finding that there's something about this Arsenal team that makes my blood boil, and it's I don't really know why. It's you know I don't support Arsenal. I don't really care how they fare one way or another, but. It just feels like this is a group of players who kind of have been very poorly assembled over five or six years, and they somehow managed to combine being full of bravado and kind of I don't know entitlement might be the wrong word, but also having no I don't know, can I say it no having no balls. There's no none of them can really take responsibility on the football pitch, and mm-hmm. I think that is what's so galling, and what's why they ca- they cop so much flack. Uh, you know, people can accept mistakes and, they, and even a lack of quality. You can lay that at someone else's door. But when the same mistakes keep happening and happening and no one's taking responsibility out in the football pitch, it's just it just becomes very hard to watch. And I think Arteta, you know, he's, 
he's a colossal job on his hands. Huge. Mm. There's a there's a phrase in Scottish football where if um, if a player needs to be moved on, like as a matter of urgency, they say he needs to be emptied, and Arsenal need to empty about fifty percent of their squad. It's like I was looking that through much. Their, looking through their squad today, and I would say half of it shouldn't be there, like as soon as as possible, as reasonably possible. So, uh, can you single out some particular names you're referring to then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll be here a while. Um, <laughs> well, you start, everyone's, you know, this is not new me saying this, but you have to start with the defence. Socrates, Mustafi and Louise empty them. Wow. Holding, Holding's had injury troubles, he's 24, he might be worth keeping for now. Callum Chambers is injured, but he's not good enough, so I think he needs to be moved on. Tierney and Bellerin. Bellerin is recovering from injury, he's not pulled up any trees since he's done that but there are two two defenders he want to hold on to Saka is a shining light for them yeah Kolasnic and Maitland-Niles are at best substitutes at a team who are looking to play in the top six in midfield Xhaka Guendouzi my god we'll come to him uh, <laughs> Ozil empty them uh, Ceballos is going to go back to Real Madrid but he'll be off somewhere else I'm sure he's flattered to deceive Torreira is injured but I think he'll He's, there's a player in there, and again, he's 24. Joe Willock's a prospect. And then up front, you, you know, Lacazette and Aubameyang are the two that's, that are being discussed just now. And I think if it comes to a point where you're persuading them and having to push out the boat so much to, for them to stay and want to stay at Arsenal, then let them go. Sell them and use that money to bring people in who are hungry and desperate to play for Arsenal and prove themselves in the Premier League. Um, and, you know, other than that, if you look at elsewhere... You've got people like Martinelli, who's, again, he's a young prospect, Eddie Nketa, um, you know, guys who are young out of the academy, Reese Nelson, who have, you know, that, if that's they're these only players you really are saying you should hold on to, then Arsenal are in a, a world of pain. So you've just listed, I'd, I'd say, roughly nine players there that you think should be shown the door at Arsenal. And I say nine big players, big name players, let's say. Um, then they're... I mean, they're, I don't know where to begin with it, Alison. Nine players that you're going to have to fill, you're going to have to replace. But we know traditionally Arsenal don't spend big. No, they're not going to do that. So the onus is now on they should. the manager. <laughs> well, they're not, but they're not going to, are they? You know they're not going to. They can't do and, it immediately, but they need to do it kind of with some, some semblance of strategy. And they need to start well, with, with Guendouzi and Ozil. And right. Okay. The central but defenders. You, right. You're coming at it from a purely um, footballing point of view. What they've got on the pitch and who don't cut it as Premier League players. I suspect that's your. You're not even. You're not even saying they're not good enough for Arsenal. You're. Like, I take it from the way you were speaking. You just don't think they're Premier League quality. Is that right for a start? Well, certainly a team that is expected to be among the top six. You know, okay. they, they, some of them might get into. A, a mid-table Premier League team, but shouldn't be playing for Arsenal. Right, well, Arteta came in and that was not his brief. And I think this is part of the problem. I'm not saying I, don't, I disagree with you, Gregor. I just think Arteta came in and was. we were all told the narrative here is that Arteta loves the club. He's always dreamed of coming back to be manager one day. He's instilled with the Wenger philosophy he will come in and 
rediscover the what makes a great club tick. And when he arrived, he said several times he's going to weed out the players who don't uh, give their heart and soul for the club. He's going to not pick players who are moody. He's going to work out who's prepared to fight for the team. And so he's, his brief, if you like, and it's, it's self-imposed to a degree, was a, an assumption that the talent's there in the dressing room. You just have to make sure it's all on message. And if one or two are troublemakers, they're the ones you drop and hope they learn their lesson. So he did not arrive at Arsenal thinking, oh, I'm going to have to work hard with the youth team and get them to spend some dosh on some decent players and maybe sell a few big names that are overrated. His brief was, we have the core of an excellent team. We just need to make sure the dressing room's back on track and people are talking to each other again. And that, I think, is the problem because that's only one strand of what's going wrong. And if that's all he's been looking at since he's come in is an assumption that he has the ingredients he just needs to make sure you know the nuances are right then I agree with you it's not going to go anywhere because ultimately you cannot make people who've had years to improve and uh, iron out the errors in their game and that Arsenal are a team where history repeats itself constantly and that is is partly because they have faith in players who you keep making those same mistakes. So I do, I do, I do agree with you. But I just don't think, I, I think part of the reason there are so many players on your list, Gregor, is because I don't think Arteta was worrying about their quality. He was worrying about their attitude. I mean, Arsenal are fascinating and I'm sure Arsenal fans hate us talking about it for the, for the fact that we find them so fascinating. But right now, Gregor, when you look at Arsenal, they are 10th in the league. They are very much mid-table and they very much look it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, almost after these first two games, I think the, you know we'll come to the discussion of where we think they should, you know, where they might finish in the table. And I almost think it doesn't matter now this season. It's like, this is the real challenge on Arteta's hands and on the the powers that be, the people who, who control the push strings. They have to they have to do something to change this because the, the thing is that Alison's right. One sense is that it's a cultural problem almost with Arsenal, and I don't think that that predates Arteta, and it's it's kind of deep deep rooted. And you know the people who who are involved in recruitment and and the signings, making the signings, they are part of that problem. So I, you know I'm not I'm not saying all this thinking that I'm expecting. Oh, expecting everything to change. I'm not. I'm not really saying that. I'm just saying this is the reality for them. This is. They have eight, nine, ten players who are not good enough, and don't have the kind of fortitude and the character necessary to play for Arsenal. So mm-hmm. that's that's the that's the position they find themselves in, and how they're going to go about changing it. I, I don't know. It's a Arteta has got a hell of a job on his hands. Back onto the game itself then, Alison. Do you think it was a worse performance, that defeat at Brighton, than the 3-0 loss to Manchester City? I would say they were equally bad, but for completely different reasons. Um, and um, there were lots of excuses for um, Arsenal's performance against City, uh, including their poor 
travel arrangements. They just, I don't, I don't know. They seemed like they, they, they were a bit winging it a bit on how, they, how to get there. Um, and you can always have as an excuse when it's the first game back after a long layoff. Some, some clubs will prepare better than others. Some teams will hit the ground running and some won't. And in some respects, you can forgive the ones who don't. It's not entirely their fault if they didn't quite grasp what it was going to be like. And of course, City are are sort of team that um, nobody's embarrassed to be defeated by. But the, I, I just felt they really lacked any self-belief. They didn't look like a team that uh, thought they could win against Man City, which was disappointing. And it was almost the opposite um, against Brighton. They did look like a team that thought they could and should win, but didn't. But they didn't remember that you have to do that by earning the right to, and you have to see out a game. So lack of discipline, uh, and Gregor, you, you said entitlement was the wrong word, but I think there was an element of that in this yeah. performance, actually. Um, you've got, you just, you know, you can play nice football and you can look the better team, but really, really, you don't know every game can go to the 95th minute. That's just, that's just crass stupidity. Well, perhaps that entitlement is what Neil Mopé was referring to in his post-match news conference as well. And, and Arsenal's afternoon began to turn for the worse when goalkeeper Bernd Leno was taken off on a stretcher with a knee injury after landing awkwardly following a coming together with Brighton's Mopé. A foul was given, but no card was shown. And, and Leno was unhappy. He made his feelings clear when he pointed at the Brighton striker as he was carried off to lay the blame at his so, Gregor, I'm sure you've looked at this incident. You've no doubt reviewed it a few times as well. What did you make of it? And, and should Mope have received a card? Was he in the wrong? No, I don't think so. I think this is pretty innocuous, really. I think it's the kind of challenging, the kind of contact coming together that happens in every single game, really. Um, you know, there, there is some question to be raised about whether that it should should happen, but it's something that's a part of football. It, it, but it was quite talent. It was quite timid, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, absolutely. There was no, you know, he barely kind of changed, changed the kind of trajectory of of Leno when he was coming down. It was just a freak accident. And it was horrible to watch. Yeah. Um, but and and you know, Mopai is someone that you'll know this very well yourself, given that he came from Brentford. He is he has got a little bit of needle, and he does like to mm. kind of he seems to wind wind people up without actually having to try. Uh, he's that kind of player and if he was playing in my team I would like that if I was playing against him I wouldn't particularly so yes he did have a bit of a an afternoon with, with Arsenal and um, and it, you could say it stemmed from that but I think it was it was very innocuous and I think the play, Arsenal players reaction to it was just an emotional one after seeing that their friend and teammate was in a serious uh, had suffered a serious injury and he was he was in pain and they looked to blame someone Mm. Alison, with your referee's hat on, do you agree with what Gregor said? Yeah, there's nothing nothing that, that Mopé did that was uh, against the uh, laws of the game. So you can't book someone just because the outcome is, is horrific. Yeah, but That's not what you're supposed to do. So absolutely, I mean, Gregor's absolutely spot on. Well, I mean, you, you might want to discuss whether there ought to be a rule that if someone's in the air, you don't touch them when they're in the air. But there's no law against it. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> It, it it was freakish. It was freakish, mm. absolutely freakish. And um, but you know, it happened in the fortieth minute. You <laughs> you can't you can't you can't let that be what's on your mind throughout the whole game, which was evident at the final whistle. That maybe that was one reason Arsenal lost. They was they they were too busy storing up their 
indignation for what had happened. And instead of thinking the best thing you can do is, what well, you know, the old-fashioned thing is just win the game for your teammate, isn't it? Well, you mentioned there at the final whistle, tempers did flare. Arsenal players surrounded uh, Mopai and Matteo Guendouzi put his hand around his neck. Now, what we believe is that VAR did actually look at the incident and they were quite happy with it, but felt that, that there was no need for any punishment to be handed out. So it means that Guendouzi won't face a retrospective ban. Uh, sources claim Arsenal players were taking verbal digs at uh, the Brighton striker throughout the game, uh, born out of frustration following that incident with Leno, which led to Mopais to say that they lacked humility after the game. When you look at what happened with Guendouzi, and now reports suggesting that there won't, won't be any retrospective action taken, what do you think of that, Alison? Um, well, that, I think there's something gone slightly wrong there, because I, you, know, you could argue um, Martin Atkinson, the referee, might have thought, I'm not, you know, he might have thought, oh, I'm not sure, uh, you know, let's just let um, VAR deal with this one. I don't know how good a view he had or what he was being told. But if VAR is going to look at it, and that gives an out, and because VAR, as we know, just one person, gives an out and says, no, it's all right, you don't have to give a, a red card for that. Um, and then that's the end of it, because VAR looked at it. That's wrong. You can't, you really can't, the game cannot have players strangling other players out of, uh, in, in vitriol, out of spite, deliberately, because they, they feel that something's gone wrong. And when a player does that, what Gwendouzi is doing by grabbing the throat of Mopai is he's basically saying to the world, um, referees got this wrong. The referees failed to see that there was a deliberate act of aggression that has felled and badly injured a player. And we've got to take our own vigilante action to get it right. You've got to stop all that. You can't, you just can't allow that to happen. <laughs> I mean, and also it wasn't like it happened. This is, this is, this is, this is an hour later. You can't, you just can't. Um, it's, it's unforgivable. And, and I'm slightly concerned that um, if, if Gwendozy was that angry, he allowed it to, to simmer on that long. It meant he wasn't in a, the right frame of mind to be doing his job on the pitch either. Yeah. So um, from a from an internal point of view, I think they need to have words with him. And I think it's deeply disappointing that that image is go, now goes unpunished because VAR had a look at it at the time. Mm. I mean, it does seem a bit balmy, doesn't it, Gregor? Because I think most people were expecting Wenduzi to get uh, some sort of ban, a three-match ban, perhaps, violent conduct. Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's a kind of the, the idea that, that because VAR looked at it, no, no further action can be taken. It seems... Is that the idea? Is that what we're hearing, basically? Yes, exactly. I mean, that. so it, it, these these sort of rules are are insane. If there's an opportunity to right a wrong, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like they don't want to go back or and kind of, you know, point out that someone's made an error or a colleague has made an error. It, it, it's, it was like when when someone is uh, was booked for a challenge and they couldn't be retrospectively given a given a ban for it. You know, there was all these all these kind of completely arbitrary, stupid rules and. If, if he, he he put his hand round round his neck and it was violent conduct, it is in modern football. I mean, look, it's not it wasn't crime of the century on a football pitch, but in modern football, that's that's violent conduct, and it, I, I've no, there's no reason why he wouldn't be getting getting a ban. And on Guendouzi, I mean, go on, let's <laughs> he, talk about him because I know you're desperate to. I just he, he's someone who's always it, it really has baffled me. I, 
I, I think I said this before. I went back to the game against Spurs last September when he drew two all, and he had a good second half. I think he curled in a a really good ball for Aubameyang to equalise. And I remember the kind of reaction afterwards. People were saying he should be the captain, like Arsenal's captain going forward for years. I think Ian Wright said that. So many people acting as if he was this beacon that, or this this person that the team should be built around. And I, I was gobsmacked with it. And he, the idea that he is the shining light, he runs around a lot, he demonstrates spirit, but he can't channel it in the right way. Um, he's a liability. And as long as he's in the team, he will cost the team points through by, through goals or being sent off or just generally kind of reckless behaviour on the football pitch. Run if he's supposed to be a, a holding midfielder, he'll charge out and leave gaping holes. So I I think he's got to be near the top of the list in the old empty board. <laughs> you love that empty board. Um, <laughs> Arsenal's back-to-back defeats, of course, since the restart mean, as we've mentioned before, that they sit in 10th. They are 11 points off fourth spot, six off fifth place Manchester United. Alison, do you think European football is, is all but gone for Arsenal? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. And I, I sort of feel slightly sad saying that because... I suspect Arteta's worked really, really hard and really wants it to happen. And I'd, I had some, some faith in his ability during the hiatus for him to have solved all those problems in the dressing room and created a really good spirit at, at the club. I thought they would emerge from the break um, better than when they went into it. And if anything, they look slightly worse. So I don't see where their momentum's going to come from. Um, and also, there's a, a really bad aura around the place now. You've got Arteta himself saying this is, you know, this is unacceptable. I just That just pulled... Given the state they're in, I don't think that those sorts of public utterings will galvanise the team and suddenly make them spurt into action. I think there's going to be another round of soul-searching and blame-making and the dressing room will probably divide again and you'll have to start all over again to make it better. So I, I, don't, I don't see where the momentum's going to come from, to be quite mm. honest. And Gregor, what about for you and Arsenal? Where should they be looking at finishing this season? Where do you think they realistically will finish? Well, I said before, I really think it's, you know, it would, if they finish strong, it would give them a bit of hope for for uh, next season, but next season is is where it's at now. They're not going to reach Europe. Um, it's going to be mid table, slightly slightly higher, maybe eighth at best. But they're. I really think that the the the, the bigger issue for them is moving some players on, is show, demonstrating that they've learned from past mistakes in the in the transfer market, or at least starting to, and showing if showing a level of support that Arteta needs. Um, he's shown promise, and I said I said this last week, he's shown promise. It's nothing more than that. You know, he showed he could organise a team. The team is better organised. It's just that he's dealing with players who are not good enough to play for that football club. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
Well, that three points for Brighton puts them 15th on 32 points, five points above West Ham and 18th place Bournemouth. But does that win put them out of trouble? The bottom four clubs all lost this weekend, but did any of the action makers want to change our predictions on the three teams to go down? Now, rock bottom Norwich lost to Southampton. Villa gave away a lead to lose to Chelsea. West Ham were well beaten at home to Wolves. And Alisson, of course, you saw Bournemouth's 2-0 home defeat to Crystal Palace. It was the first game since Eddie Howe confirmed Ryan Fraser won't play for the club again this season after refusing to sign a contract extension. When we just focus on that situation with Ryan Fraser, do you feel that that had any effect on Bournemouth at all, Alison? Well, it couldn't have helped. Um, (laughs) I mean, it really couldn't. But, you know, fate gives with one hand and takes with the other. Um, David Brooks was back, who's a, a really talented young midfielder. And... He looked rusty because it was his, his first game of the season because he had two ankle operations. But he uh, only lasted an hour. But in that hour, he, he did show glimpses of uh, proper talent, you know, sort of thing that can, you know, open up a defence, do something, create a bit of magic, get you a result that you, you might not think you could get. Um, but afterwards, he was asked about Ryan Fraser and he said, oh, he's my mate, so I don't really want to talk about it. And the managers made it clear if you're not, if you're not committed to the club, then we don't want you. We don't want you anyway, sort of thing. It, it would have been an absolute blow to morale, I'm sure. Because if you're in a, if you're in trouble, if you're in a relegation battle, one of the things you have to do is, you know, stirring speeches, remind everybody if we're all in this together, we can get out of it. It's our, you know, it's our, our history, our fans, our we've done it before. Our never day, never day die spirit, our ability to. Um, be better than the sum of our parts and then if you get a key player saying well actually I don't, I don't want to be part of that rousing stirring finale that saves the, saves the day it will it will you know it will puncture that enthusiasm so I'm sure it did did have an effect um, I wouldn't call it the excuse or the reason for the defeat but um, I, I dare say uh, I, I just don't see what, in what I don't see how it could not have been a negative contributing factor. Yeah. Well, the stats don't look good for Bournemouth. They failed to keep a clean sheet in each of their past 13 league matches and they've lost seven Premier League games in 2020. No other side has lost more during this calendar year. From what you've seen of Eddie Howe and and perhaps at that game, Alison, in particular, does he look broken? Does he look like he's still got the fight? It's not not Eddie Howe's style to to give those sorts of... um, Public no. rousing speeches. He's he is steady Eddie, isn't he? He he sounds pretty much the same whether he wins or loses. And in fact, I think he's gone on record to say he's very pleased. He is like that. So whenever he's had a a superb win against the odds, he will sound exactly the same whether he if, as if he'd lost. And he will say, "I don't want to get carried away." So um, it's probably asking too much for him to become a different type of personality because they're in deep trouble. But the problem is, because he is steady Eddie, it, it gives the impression that he's run out of ideas because he's not saying anything new. He's just being very uh, calm and polite and um, decent about it. He doesn't he doesn't offer excuses. He doesn't complain about anything. <laughs> but maybe, maybe at this, I mean, they're not going to. They owe him so much, and he's been a fantastic servant to the club. And I can see 
I can see them even thinking, well, we'll stick with him if we go down and I'm sure he'll do a good job getting us back up. But I think we're at that stage with Bournemouth now. But, and I wouldn't really say now there's any point in, in uh, changing the manager. Although it would be really fascinating, wouldn't it, if someone did sack their manager during lockdown? <laughs> that, would be, that would be remarkable. Ooh, but yes. I, I, don't think, I don't think they're going to. But I do think it's hard, it's hard to imagine what he's doing differently behind the scenes to change it it, it, it I, I'm, I'm not sure he's got the resources to do much anyway so it has to come from you know some sort of weird team bonding session or mixing it up a bit I, 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 I it just don't seem to have quite the resources um or that I don't know that sort of aggressive no one likes us we don't care everyone quite likes them and cares a tiny bit it's just not that's not that's not enough to get out of trouble <laughs> so, Gregor, what do you think of the, the Eddie Howe situation? Do, do you think, well, if they were to go down, that Bournemouth would stick with them? Or do you think it's coming to an end? I think it could go could go both ways. I think, um, you know, it's a long, this is a long, a long standing thing. It's not, you know, I think they've won 12 of the last 50 Premier League games. Um, and I think there are, you know, they have had some, some injuries uh, to key players. Callum Wilson has just not had the season that that he has had in the past. I think he's leading goal scorer eight goals, um, and I also think there is something that is kind of about transitioning from the core of players that that got them to the Premier League, and 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 helped keep them there and kept it kind of I don't know kept the identity of that football club uh, to the fore. There, you know, I think Steve Cook is probably the last man standing of that that group. Mm-hmm. Harry Arter has moved on to Fulham. Charlie Daniels knee injury and he's getting on. Jaime Francis same had a long term knee injury. He's come back, but he's thirty five. I think you know we're seeing the end of an era here for the for that. Well, what's been a remarkable story, um, and you know w- when that happens, there's always <laughs> there's always, it's usually the manager who who goes. Otherwise, you've got to look at changing a lot of players, or you know they they, they make the change with the hope of someone else being able to inspire or reinvig- reinvigorate that group of players better. I mean, look, look at Spurs and Pochettino. It's kind of almost the same sort of thing. An era kind of becomes stale. Uh, a tenure becomes stale, sorry. And they look to make a change. But you look at look at Spurs now. I mean, with Spurs, <laughs> Spurs aren't looking any better. So, And they had a manager there who who loved the, the club deeply. And Bournemouth have the same. They have a manager who's deeply attached to that football club and if you just ask the simple question who is going to be better placed if it comes to it to to rebuild or to help take that club back up and it's I can't think of anyone Has um, Eddie Howe's stock fallen since a few seasons ago Alison when he was tipped for great success? Oh god it has but I don't think that's his fault I think he was overhyped to be quite honest because he was young and English and um reasonably good looking people just went over the top I don't I have no idea why <laughs> because he's reasonably good looking obviously um, but I mean when you think back to a few seasons ago Gregor he was tipped to, to move on from Bournemouth he was tipped to perhaps even Everton were, were a club linked with him for example but it's Arsenal. Always, Arsenal indeed as well but it's England all... <laughs> see was, you're I listing think, them all yeah I mean it was he certainly was I think it, partly that represents 
uh, sorry, that's a cause of kind of there being very few people like Eddie Howe. As, as I mentioned in one of our lockdown pods, England aren't doing managers very well at the moment. Um, and he was someone who was kind of a, a bright young hope. Uh, and maybe, you know, I, I, I still think he is someone who is a, he's a fine coach. And I've, I've seen him match, I've seen him take training sessions before. Um, and I was I was amazed by the kind of detail and intensity of it. And I know one or two Bournemouth players who who have been on that journey, and and you know they've got nothing but positive words to say about him. So I'm sure he's going to have a, a top career, whatever happens, a, a, a long term kind of career at the top level, whatever happens uh, with him at Bournemouth this season and, and beyond. Um, but yeah, I think Alison's probably right. I think maybe people did get carried away a bit, but that's because who who's the next Eddie Howe? And because he's sort of good looking. Um, <laughs> but as it stands then, the, the bottom three is Norwich, Aston Villa and Bournemouth. Uh, we'll come to you, Gregor, then first, because obviously we've had a few opportunities to talk about how we think the bottom three is going to end up. And you've always said, no, you think Norwich are going to come good. This is going to benefit them playing behind closed doors. And then what goes and happens in their first game at Carrow Road, they lose 3-0 to Southampton. Are you still sticking by it? That teething, Norwich will teething survive? Teething issues, teething issues, yeah. <laughs> I also think, I think Alison was quite strong in the Norwich camp no, as well last week. No, I think you were right. Uh, I think you were <laughs> anyway, right. look, I think, I, I think the, you know, I said uh, Tim Closer coming back, their best defender was big, and then Grant Hanley, Christoph Zimmerman and Sam Byram were all ruled out for the rest of the season. So they've had some tough luck there. But the truth of the matter is, in both boxes, they haven't been good enough. They they conceded 57 goals when they won the championship last season and they didn't improve on that defensive back line and it's shown. And mm. Pukki started like a house on fire. They were far too reliant on him and when the goals dried up, I think they scored, they've not scored in six of their last nine games. So it's looking very difficult for them. Uh, I don't know. I've, I've, Changing your mind, Gregor? Ask me me after the next game. Okay, (laughs) all right. But as it stands, as I say, Norwich, Villa and Bournemouth, uh, any of those other teams that you're thinking will go down? I don't think we we learned anything new, particularly about West Ham or Watford. I think West Ham looked solid and organised and then Adama Traore came on and he turned on the, the afterburners and set up two goals and that changed the changed the game that's why they lost and Watford you know I think they looked organized Ben Ben Chilwell scored a screamer and they showed the kind of spirit and uh, endeavor to keep going right to the final whistle and they stole a point so I don't think we've really learned anything new about them uh, I still wouldn't say Brighton are completely out of it because they played a, they beat an average Arsenal team um and they've got a very difficult running so you know I think the three in the bottom three just now are looking like the most likely to go down, but I wouldn't rule out. I wouldn't say that we've learned anything particularly new about the other three. Okay, and Alison, what about you and your bottom three? Has anything changed from this weekend for you? I'm slightly less enthusiastic about Norwich <laughs> because I felt if they if they had hit the ground running, I think a lot of people would have bought into their ability to climb out of it because they've they re- yeah they don't score enough goals, but they rarely play badly, mm. and I you know we. Which which was the worst performance, Norwich's or against Southampton, or Arsenal's against Brighton? You'd still say, well, Arsenal's was worse. So I don't. You know, there's always, there's always something to point to at Norwich and think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if it clicks, if they get a bit of luck, it'll be all right. I'm not giving up on them yet, no. because 
because... think we're the only podcast who aren't. <laughs> I know. I just, but there is something quite seductive about how sunny they remain through a difficult period, I think. And they are entertaining. I mean, who do you want to stay up? Someone who entertains or someone who doesn't? Oh, you see, you two need to be doing uh, the uh, OTBC on the ball city. That's what you need to keep saying. And who knows, maybe they'll come good for you both. And you mentioned Watford there, of course. They grabbed a vital point in the scrap for survival in what was a frenetic finale on Saturday at home to Leicester. It was goalless after 88 minutes, but then enter Ben Chilwell, who out of nowhere gave the visitors the lead with a stunning long-range strike. Coming in from the left, England left back, uh, arrowed the ball past and outstretched Ben Foster and in off the far post, but Watford refused to give up and were again levelled just moments later in, in similarly unlikely circumstances. There was a bit of a, a scramble in the box and the Watford centre-back, Craig Dawson, leapt up and scored his first Hornets goal with a brilliant bicycle kick, sealing the one-all draw in the fourth minute of stoppage time. Two cracking goals, actually, in this one when you consider Ben Chilwell's uh, as well. But, Gregor, how do we go about describing Craig Dawson's? Um, unlikely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's, you know, he's actually always had a, a decent goal scoring record. I played against him when he started out at Rochdale and he's, and I remember always thinking back then, you know, he, he scored a lot of goals. He, I think he maybe scored one or two against the teams I was playing for, unfortunately. But, and I looked today and he scored 21 goals in 93 games from centre half for, for Rochdale starting out then. And he's always popped up with the goals. Never a bicycle, bicycle kick, I have to say. But he's um, he's someone who's who's kind of dangerous in the box. So uh, it was a fun. He's one of these where he said, I think he said afterwards, it's like you you try it in training and and you comes off your shin and goes over the crossbar. But it went in and uh, a hugely important goal for them. Did you ever try one in your career, Gregor? Uh, I think we all know the answer to that. So <laughs> let's move on. Oh <laughs> come on! What about in training at least? Ah yeah, in training. Yeah, and as I say, they hit the shin and uh, go over the crossbar mainly. <laughs> and what about Alison? Surely you must have attempted one, Alison. No, no. I know my limitations. That's nothing more embarrassing than... Oh, no, 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 no. I wouldn't have tried one. I mean, just, just actually going for a header, I thought was pretty brave of me most of Oh, absolutely. I but I love the way... That. I love the way, if you watch the goal, Craig Dawson, he, the way he, he keeps his eye on it. And there's something about... When a player executes a lovely goal like that, if you watch it, they look like they always knew they were going to score it. And there's a sort of force field around them. Him, them. So although from one angle it looks like quite a crowded penalty area, <laughs> from another point of view it looks like he creates this sort of space and it's all falling into place for him. And everything about it was sort of technically spot on. And it would have been completely instinctive, but... It's not um it's not like a clumsy centre half's goal. It's a properly beautifully executed snatched goal. But it's it's really good. So was this the best goal of the weekend, Gregor? I mean the worst competition, Chilwell's was a absolute screamer. I mean, that yeah. wasn't it? What a left yeah. foot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean the view, the view from behind you know, it was perfect for the camera angle. He just hit it absolutely beautifully and sweetly. Uh sort of the top corner, so that was a cracker. And then Pedro Neto's volley for Wolves. Mm. He did. He couldn't have caught that much sweeter too. So, yeah, some great, some great goals. It's a, it was a strange week, kind of first week of football, I think overall. And I think only was it five, five or twenty-two goals in the first half. It seems to be all quite cautious, and then, and then teams kind of find their stride a little bit as the game progresses, and that's to be, to be uh, expected, I suppose. But mm. some great goals nonetheless. 
I guess no one expected a centre-half like Craig Dawson to do what he did on Saturday at Vicarage Road. It was an extraordinary goal from, and forgive me for referring to you as this, Craig, an ordinary player, shall we say. Um, can, we, <laughs> can we think of any other examples of this? Some pretty classic strikes from unlikely sources. I know we've had Stephen Reid. He's had a 30-yard stunner, for example, for Blackburn against Wigan. and Manuel Figueroa inside his own half for Wigan against Stoke. I mean, there's been plenty of unexpected goals. So what about your most extraordinary goal that's come from an ordinary player? Alison? Well, I don't think he's ordinary. It's a, <laughs> a bit harsh. A lot of, but a lot of people have laughed at me for saying that I think he's an extraordinary player. So if I accept that other people's opinion and go for Charlie Adam as an ordinary player, yeah. his, <laughs> his, um, his goal from um, deep in his, his own half... Um, Stamford Bridge. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, the halfway line. It was plus 20. Um, and I was there, you see. So it and it was it was kind of... Um, it felt... It felt so almost, almost spiritual because I'd been, I'd been <laughs> nudging people and saying, he's going to do something special today. I can tell. I'm a big Charlie Adam fan, you know. I can tell when he's in the mood. And they were all <laughs> looking at me like I was completely nutter stalker. And then he goes and produces one of the most beautiful goals the Premier League has ever seen. At you know, and it's not like it's a goal against a rubbish team. This was um, you know, top Chelsea side, and uh, it was it was it was just incredible. And I I suppose people call him ordinary because he's not got the physique of a a top athlete, and maybe he does sort of blunderbuss around. But I th- I think um, because I was there and I expected it to happen, it was the most wondrously unexpected goal. It wasn't unexpected to me, but it was for everyone else. <laughs> I love that. The Charlie Adam fan club, which is uh, obviously started by you, Alison. I like that. Um, what about you, Gregor? Have you got one for us? Uh, I, again, I'm not entirely sure if he was ordinary, but it was a hell of an unexpected one. If you go back to 1996 and uh, Philip Albert's chip against Manchester United, the 5-0 win for Newcastle I think it was the fifth goal he kind of collected the ball stepped into midfield and kind of continued just ran with it and no one really closed him down and the goalkeeper was off his line and he just dinked the goalkeeper and it was a kind of euphoric moment 5-0 win for Newcastle uh, Newcastle in their pomp then so I think that's probably my do you know although he's obviously not ordinary but it's the 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 unexpectedness is the thing of this I think you've got to throw Vincent Company's goal last year into this for uh, clearly against Leicester yes yeah because he's because you know he he never scored a goal that came close to that and he was dangerous in the box and stuff but and for the kind of the the importance of that moment and it was an absolute wonder strike so I think he could throw that and I know he's not ordinary but again one of the most unexpected strikes you've ever seen yeah and also, when you think back to, I think, Pep Guardiola afterwards sort of saying, what are you doing, Vinny? What are you doing? Yeah, and then he goes and scores. <laughs> so even his own manager wasn't expecting it. And perhaps yeah. perhaps the, the description of ordinary player is a little harsh because obviously all these players yeah. are, are playing in the Premier League, the, one of the best leagues in the world. So they're not doing too bad. Um, if I was to just, from my own opinion, and I'm actually going to Brentford here. Uh, there was a I know. <laughs> there was a player, uh, a Welshman called Paul Evans, who I believe now is the physio or no a masseur at Leeds I played with him at Forest actually 
Yeah. Oh, so yes, you would have done. Yes. So he scored two goals from the halfway line within a week and a half for Brentford. And I was at the one at Griffin Park. And I forget who we were playing, which is terrible. But I was sat with my dad. And I both remember when he... It was it was a bizarre moment. We both were thinking... And we both said it out loud, what is he doing? Oh, my goodness. And you just went <laughs> mental because, it obviously, it was a great goal. But thinking, what are you playing at? But anyway, uh, it led to a, a great goal for us. And as I say, he scored two in about a week and a half. So that was pretty impressive. So that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Alison as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Just search The Times subscription for more information. And we will be back with you on Thursday. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.